Mass market nostalgia gets you hot for a past that never existed. Hagiography sanctifies shuck and jive politicians and reinvents their expedient gestures as moments of great moral weight. Our continuing narrative line is blurred past truth and hindsight. Only a reckless verisimilitude can set that line straight. It's time to demythologize an era and build a new myth from the gutter to the stars. It's time to embrace bad men and the price they paid to secretly define their time. Here's to them. I had a dream about this place. Episode 16, Ghost Stories, End of the World, The Return, baby. Um, a big thank you to everyone who kept supporting us, even when it seemed touch and go the we whether we'd actually be back. Um, thanks to your strength and good vibes, I have now risen Phoenix-like from the ashes of podcast destruction. Um, the plan for releases going forward uh, will be to try to post episodes in batches with healthy breaks for research and writing and the general business of life in between. Hopefully none of those breaks will be as long as the one that we've just uh, come back from. But, you know, never say never in this game. So, yeah, my first instinct, actually, when we were exploring Europe very early in the show... Uh, was to do that kind of anthology style collections and I think it is actually a much more sensible and chill approach than trying to kind of cobble together an hour of content every week as well as balancing a job and you know generally trying to live life to its fullest um, so yeah once we finish American Tabloid which should be all wrapped up within a month we'll be taking a shorter break a much shorter break, uh, a couple of weeks or so, and then we'll be returning with a big dive into a topic that I've wanted to cover ever since the beginning of this entire project, really, but it took me a while to find an approach that works um, and keeps everything relatively grounded, but I think I found that approach now. And then, um, if everything goes to plan and he's still amenable, I'm hoping that an American pal of mine uh, may still be up for joining me for a series about what I've come to think of as my great white whale. Uh, I can't say too much right now, but think of it as a kind of loose sequel to American Tabloid. It's probably going to require the most research of anything we've covered so far, and I'm nervous as hell that 
I'm going to screw it up without the right guidance, which is why I need this guy to kind of drop by the bunker and shepherd me along along the path of inquiry. Uh, but don't worry. Yeah, it's not going to be about Jeffrey Epstein. So don't worry about that. <laughs> so, yeah, as always, uh, you can drop us a line at ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. And um, dare I say, if you can spare the bread, then show some love on the Ghost Stories for the End of the World Patreon. Oh, uh, before we actually begin part three, I have some other news for you as well. Uh, you might remember a guy called Giovanni Brusca, who was a mafia hitman and capo in the Corleone family. And he made a name for himself during the Matanza, you know, the great mafia war of the 1980s that we did an episode about. He was also the guy who carried out the bombing that killed Giovanni Falcone. The most um, disturbing quote from this guy that I've ever read is the one where he was supposedly asked to give a rough estimate of how many people he killed during his career. And he's alleged to have said many more than 200, but less than 300. Well, he's just been released from prison. Uh, remember that he turned informant when he was arrested back in 1996. So I assume that his life sentence was reduced to 25 years, like in exchange for his cooperation. Uh, I've been reading some Italian press coverage from the last week or so, and people are pissed over there about this. And I understandably so, you know, and of course there's talk of uh, payoffs and politicking behind the scenes, but so far it, it seems mostly like speculation. Uh, I should probably emphasize though that this is as big a deal as say um, Belgium releasing Mark Dutroux or the US government pardoning Charles Manson. I mean, it's, it's that level of jaw dropping to a lot of Italians. Uh, I'm still reading about the motivation behind the release. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was actually let out 45 days shy of the full 25-year sentence. So it's not, you know, too big a reduction in what he was given. Um, but I was struck by a quote from uh, Giovanni Falcone's sister, Maria. Uh, she, she seems to be extremely conflicted about it. Uh, she was saying that she's hurt and bewildered by Brusca's release, but she's also aware that he has technically served his time. So it's you know, very tricky to comment on this from hundreds of miles away. But I'll drop some links to Italian news coverage in, in the episode description and have a read, see what you make of it. Oh, also, um, one other weird fact that I learned recently is that Giovanni Brusca is responsible for triggering a fashion revolution in the Camorra you know, the Neapolitan mafia organization. Because when the Italian cops finally tracked him down and hauled him out of his safe house, uh, Brusca looked like total shit. Uh, he had a, you know, long, scraggly, tangled beard, creased trousers, sweaty shirt covered in uh, spaghetti sauce stains. And apparently the Camara guys were so aghast at this, so disgusted that they apparently decided to uh, double down on dressing to the nines at all times so that when they get arrested or killed, you know, 
they look like fucking rock stars, like movie gangsters. And some of them apparently even brought in formal dress codes, which is how you end up with a lot of the female Kamara bosses will um, create all female hit squads and dress them in, say, the yellow tracksuit that Uma Thurman wore in Kill Bill. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, Maria Licciardi did that. Amazing. <laughs> so anyway, um, on with American Tabloid. And this is part three, and it's called Underworld. Now, there is something I kind of need to signpost here at the top of this show about what this series is and what it isn't um, due to people making me aware of some other recent shows dealing with similar topics uh, that have been covering the JFK situation, that whole jazz. Um, now, I've been completely out of the loop for the last few months and I'm kind of slowly finding my way back into said loop. Like I curated my timeline, so I only read about like funny pandas and arty horror movies these days. But I've been getting quite a few emails from listeners who, understandably, have maybe anticipated that American Tabloid, you know, because of the the title and some of the stuff we've chatted about so far, I guess they've anticipated that I'm going to gradually morph this into a granular analysis of the JFK assassination and the Bay of Pigs and all the rest of it. And God bless them because my listeners are a very helpful and supportive bunch of people. Um, they've been sending me, well, not all, but some of them have been sending me uh, JFK specific content, you know, like articles and book recommendations and other podcasts and diagrams of Dealey Plaza with arrows showing where the bullets must have been fired from and their theories about who might have done it and so on and so forth. And I really mean it when I say thank you because all of that stuff is super interesting and I'm learning stuff that I didn't even know about it. But this story is not about JFK or the JFK assassination per se, at least, you know, no more than our episode about the Sicilian Mafia and the Matanza was about the assassination of Giovanni Falcone. Uh, so I hope I'm not disappointing anybody who wanted that forensic investigation of the JFK hit. I mean, I buy that he was killed by some kind of conspiracy, be it a direct order from Alan Dulles or a breakaway group of CIA agents or Cuban exiles, whatever, but I don't know, I have no real interest in kind of wallowing in the mechanics of all the various theories of how exactly it went down. Now, I grant 
that it was a significant event in world history, but maybe because I'm British, which I think I've apologized for in the past and might as well apologize for again here. But I think maybe because of that, I don't have emotions as, you know, non-British people experience them. So I can embrace the kind of apocalyptic significance that is afforded the JFK assassination. I can't really get behind the idea that his death represents some uh, cataclysmic moment in 20th century history when the future was lost forever and so on and so forth. Um, it's just, I don't have that opinion about it. But nevertheless, you know, JFK will be popping up again and again and will become more of a prominent figure in this story as we go along. But this story has been and will be a version of how the forces that converged on Dealey Plaza developed in the pre- and post-war decades. So it's a very broad look at how parts of the American deep state evolved throughout the post-war years. And it's a look at some of the power plays and connections that were made during that time, culminating in what happened in Dallas. So this series will use the JFK hit as its terminus point, but it is not specifically about JFK. So yeah, hope, again, hope nobody's disappointed by that. So what we're going to do tonight to kind of ease our way back into these uh, murky waters is we are going to start with the mob angle and we're going to follow that until we reach a major nexus point in this story, which is Cuba specifically and the arms and oil and drug trades more broadly and how these economic forces shaped the legitimate and illegitimate institutions around them after World War II. And we're also going to be meeting more people from the Southwest this episode, uh, looking at some of the, you know, the capital C cowboys who ascended to the commanding heights of power in the US deep state after World War II. I've, I've kind of been structuring this series so far using three very broad uh, categories, which are crime, intelligence, and business slash politics. Now, there'd always been a lot of overlap between these three, as I think we've established by this point. But I think what you'll get a feel for is how after 1945 or so, they all become basically impossible to disentangle. Not that we're not going to give it the old college try anyway, of course. Um, but what you'll see is the oil men are the politicians, are the spooks, are the paid off journalists, are the private investigators, are the gangsters, all of them kind of scheming and thrashing it out behind the, the gaudy pageantry of America's national myth-making in those crucial years between 1945 and 1960. So with that in mind, let's begin. So uh, we covered the uh, Castella Marisi war in part one of, of the American tabloid series. And I just want to kind of loop back to the 30s to kind of expand on some of what we talked about there. 
Uh, I believe that we touched on how in most popular accounts, Luciano's consolidation of power in 1933 represented some kind of um, definitive historical break with the traditional supposedly backwards Sicilian mafia. Now, in my head, I get an image of Luciano here as a kind of mob startup guy, you know, a, a gangland disruptor wearing a black turtleneck and giving TED Talks about how it's time to modernize the families and rebuild them along corporate lines. Uh, my feeling is that his um, mob CEO image has always been wildly overplayed. Uh, because what I see instead isn't so much spur-of-the-moment innovation uh, on the part of Maya Lansky or Lucky Luciano, uh, but the same old trend towards monopolistic dominance that we see with all successful capitalist enterprises. Now, this trend, I think, would have looked different without Lucky or Lansky making the decisions, you know, the mafia... The American Mafia might have got there a little sooner or a little later, but the mob families would have probably reached the same level of control over the US underworld without them because their methods and organizational structure proved to be the most effective in that particular period of history. Now, it is fair to say that the war marked the moment where the Sicilian Mafia in America finally merged with the other ethnically Italian gangs in the States to become the Italian-American Mafia, what the FBI so atrociously calls La Cosa Nostra, which translates to the Our Thing. Now, the popular reasons given for why the Castellamarisi war broke out uh, be it because the older bosses were old-fashioned and out of touch or too old-world and sentimental to handle the cold-eyed capitalism of the states embodied by, you know, uh, second-generation Sicilians like Luciano and Carlo Gambino. Well, none of that has ever really worked for me because the mafia always adapts. That's the one constant throughout its history. So... We can think of the Castellamarisi War instead as the resolution of the tension that was inherent to the decades-long process of assimilation that Italian gangsters had been undergoing in America. Now, this did not mark any kind of definitive break with the old world, which is, for one thing, why the OSS knew that Luciano would be an effective middleman in their dealings with the clans in Sicily during the invasion of Italy in World War II. Now, in the same way that the Yankees in the north and east of the states, uh, I'm talking, you know, the uh, Ivy League blue blood types, it's kind of how they remain close to their Anglo-European counterparts in Britain and Western Europe. Um, the Italian-American mafia would always maintain very close business and family links with its antecedents across the Atlantic. And there's even evidence that as recently as the 80s and the 90s, a Sicilian or Neapolitan or Calabrian criminal who'd joined an American family would still need a kind of character reference from back home if he wanted to move to a different crew in another city. Now, for all that I've kind of tried to uh, deflate some of the mythology around 
the this period of mob history, the 1930s. Um, it should be said that uh, Lansky and Luciano and the rest of the boys knew that uh, creating at least the perception of a newly professionalized criminal class would prove more economically and politically beneficial long-term than if they continued with the 1920s style bloodbaths. So a mantra of theirs around this time was we are, we're getting things organized. And it was a kind of underworld PR job and it eventually filtered out to the wider public and it, you know, became a, an enduring source of fascination. The idea of um, gangsters who act more like uh, heads of corporations, you know, it's uh, it's a cliche nowadays, but it, it, it all comes from this period of, of time. Now, what was unique owing to this time and place was how many criminal connections outside the structure of the mafia uh, Luciano could use to supplement his power inside the organization. And this is where we can draw a distinction between the mafia and what was called the National Crime Syndicate. So from now on in this series, when we say mafia, we are referring to specifically Italian-American organized crime. But when we say the mob or the syndicate, we're talking about that wider underworld network in which the American mafia was the dominant player, but you know was part of a larger kind of organization. So I want to focus on the character of Mayalansky for a time now, because with Luciano sent down for pimping and extortion, as we discussed previously, Lansky became the point man in many ways, a kind of um, financial consultant who had Luciano's proxy. Now, Lansky was a Ukrainian-born Jew, so as a non-Italian, he could never be initiated into the Luciano family, but... Because of his financial savvy and his business and political contacts, he had considerable sway with mafia families across the states and he was trusted to handle all their investment portfolios and point them towards new opportunities. And he was affectionately nicknamed the accountant during this, this period of the height of his influence. One place that Lansky was drawn to was Las Vegas and not just because of the profit to be made in gambling, but also because of the new economic and political connections that this would unlock for the savvy investor. And a good figure to follow if we want to track the expansion of organized crime's ambitions during this time is uh, Lansky and Luciano's friend and protege, Benjamin Siegel, or Bugsy now. Bugsy had been selling Lansky on the idea of developing Las Vegas for years by the 1940s. And Siegel had served his time under both Luciano and Lansky during Prohibition, and all three of them were extremely tight-knit. And Bugsy had kind of developed a reputation as a, a flashy, unstable killer. Um, you might have heard the famous story about the time he was playing poker. And he thought that one of the people he was playing with was taking too long to show their hand or deal in. So he blew the guy's head off, sat him back at the table, the dead body back at the table, and checked the guy's hand, and then slapped the corpse and said, you should have played that, you fucking idiot. 
I don't know how true that story is, but you know, I think when you're at a point where that's a story that could even be made up about you, <laughs> you may be slightly unstable. He, uh, he'd put in plenty of work as a contract killer in the syndicate's new nationwide enforcement arm, which the papers called Murder Incorporated, who were kind of um, a mob within a mob whose job was to act as um, contract killers, of course, debt collectors, and uh, the extortionists you call in when your own guys can't collect a payment from somebody who owes you money. Bugsy actually thrived uh, in Murder Incorporated, unsurprisingly, and wound up running his own crew in the outfit and becoming widely feared in the American underworld. Now, after a flaky alibi had led to the police taking another look at his role in the murders of the Fabrizio brothers, who they'd been planning a hit on Bugsy and Lansky, Siegel was dispatched to California in the mid-1930s by Lansky and Luciano with orders to develop a stronger mob presence in Los Angeles and California more broadly. And his job was to supervise Jack Dragner and Mickey Cohen as they organized the gambling and prostitution rackets out there. And he also helped to improve the security of the drug trafficking routes between California and Mexico. And it's here where you can say that Bugsy went Hollywood. Uh, he threw money around freely. He became known in LA high society as a glamorous mobster who had the connections to solve any problem that you had. And he moved in extremely elite circles uh, and kept hundreds of cops and judges and politicians and celebrities on his payroll. And he could call in favors from Frank Sinatra and other Hollywood stars. And he was renowned for his lavish parties and exceptional orgies. And he fucked a string of wealthy socialites, including a countess called Dorothy Di Frasso. So it is very tempting to read the mob's development as a metaphor for American capitalism as a whole. Uh, you know, from the grimy streets of East Coast cities, rising to ever more rarefied and glamorous and powerful heights while expanding westward and overseas. And there is an especially strange resonance between the mob and US big business and intelligence when you factor in two very strange episodes from the 1930s. And the first is the time when Countess Dorothy took Siegel with her to her Italian homeland. And here, Bugsy personally met Benito Mussolini and none other than Joseph Goebbels and Hermann Goering. Now imagine, imagine being a fly on the wall at that meeting where you have this Jewish hitman from New York by way of Hollywood drinking uh, cognac and smoking cigars with two of the highest ranking Nazis in the Third Reich. And then there's the story of Luciano's other childhood friend, Vito Genovese. Now Genovese's background is, is kind of standard for a mobster of his time, of his generation. So I'm not gonna dwell too much on that. But what is fascinating is the time he spent in Italy in the late thirties on the run from New York prosecutors. In 36, when Luciano was sent down, Genovese assumed control of the Luciano family and it you know, thereafter became known as the Genovese family. And he was boss for a year 
and then he decided that the DA had a pretty good case against him for murder and he'd best go on the lam, as they say. So he settled in a little town near Naples with a million dollars in cash and somehow managed to bribe his way into Mussolini's inner circle. He became very good friends with Mussolini's son-in-law, Galeazzo Ken, you know, keeping him and other senior Italian fascists supplied with high-grade coke and hash and opium. A recurring theme of, of this period of fascism is that these guys uh, loved to party. And while Mussolini continued to hype up his war on the mafia, his son-in-law's new best friend was acting boss of the most powerful crime family in America, and he was busy organizing rackets and smuggling routes up and down the Italian peninsula. And Genovese was so successful in Italy that he could afford to gift upwards of some sources peg it to between four and six million dollars to the Italian fascist party. And he was even awarded the Order of Saints Maurice and Lazarus, which puts him in the same pantheon of greats as Nazi politician Hans Lames and former New York mayor Rudy Giuliani. And as a personal favor to uh, the deuce, uh, Genovese even had a guy called Carlo Tresca shot dead. And Tresca was an Italian immigrant and anarchist who was based in New York, but who published a weekly activist magazine that was ardently against the Mussolini government. And he was killed in downtown Manhattan, just outside the entrance to his magazine's offices on the orders of Genovese back in Italy. And of course, it goes without saying that when it was time for the Americans to invade Italy at the end of the war, Genovese had no trouble switching allegiance back to Uncle Sam and using his Italian connections to assist in the hunt for fleeing Nazis and fascists, uh, offering the mob another in with US intelligence. So we'll return very briefly to Bugsy because his spell in Vegas will help set up some threads that we'll be pursuing later in this journey. In 44, he was tried and acquitted for bookmaking. Now, this wasn't his first dance, but the trial had unearthed a lot of his criminal activities. And this was an open secret among his new friends in Hollywood, but they were worried that they'd be tarnished by all the negative publicity from it. So Bugsy needed to get out of California, and Las Vegas offered him an escape. Lansky, meanwhile, had been looking to step back from some of his day-to-day business dealings in Nevada by this point. Uh, He was preferring to assume a kind of senior statesman role, an elder statesman role, uh, acting as, you know, the bank and an advisor. So he handed Bugsy the keys to the realm, to the desert kingdom, and he said, go forth and build casinos. So Bugsy hooked up with a guy called William Wilkerson, who was the founder of The Hollywood Reporter and a Nevada property developer. More on him in a little bit. And they set to work developing the Flamingo Hotel. And this is a pretty well-known chapter, so I'm not going to bother going too deep on it. But suffice to say that Bugsy had the right idea, but the wrong timing, because he envisioned a luxury center of entertainment and gambling that 
would be affordable for the working stiff while attracting ritzy high rollers. And additionally, his plan would shift control of Vegas away from the local families of good old boys who ran the town in favor of the mob. And from the start, there were, you know, construction delays and all kinds of technical problems. Uh, costs started to spiral and Bugsy wound up sinking deep into the red. Uh, so he was borrowing more and more money from the syndicate to cover debts that he owed elsewhere. Now, he was always unstable, as we've established, but the repeat requests from his friends for payback on high interest loans led him to begin threatening syndicate members back east that he was going to cut off the flow of cash from his outfit in California, that he was going to withhold their share of the Las Vegas profits once the Flamingo was completed, and on and on. And there's also every chance in the world that he was skimming from the construction funds and stashing the money in one of his numerous offshore accounts uh, because Bugsy's kleptomania was was legendary. And this was something that Luciano and Lansky had always affectionately tolerated, you know, the mood swings and the stealing and, and all the rest of it. They considered it part of his charm. But it was not something that the rest of the syndicate was happy about. And suffice to say... The opening of the Flamingo was a complete disaster with uh, bad weather, keeping most of Bugsy's celebrity pals away and much of the hotel being unfinished. So although it eventually began to turn a profit, Bugsy had burned way too many bridges. He was skimming way too much profit and he owed way too much money. Luciano and Lansky tried to head off the inevitable, but they were forced to kind of reluctantly give the nod to the syndicate and in June of 1947 Bugsy was shot to shit in Beverly Hills while he was sitting in the living room of his girlfriend Virginia Hill's house. So Siegel was out of the picture but he'd helped cement the syndicate in Las Vegas. He'd opened up a crucial uh, territory for them in Nevada. Um, now you think if you look on a map of these here United States, uh, you know, just in case you're unfamiliar with kind of the geography of all this. So you have California, which is kind of this uh, slice of land that cuts down the west coast of the, the US. And then you have Nevada just kind of tucked uh, alongside it. And then both of them border Arizona and Arizona in turn borders New Mexico, which in turn borders Texas, and all four of these states, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, border Mexico itself. And if you, as uh, the leader of an organized crime outfit, can establish a territory in any one of those states, then that also opens up access to very lucrative smuggling routes. And then on top of this, just their presence in Nevada meant that they got to learn even more about large-scale money laundering and how to use local banks and casinos to facilitate it and then siphoning off huge amounts of cash from the Teamsters pension fund you know, via fraudulent loans to invest in newer, flashier ventures on the strip. And the Chicago outfit inserted their guy, Alan Dorfman, 
to oversee the kind of day-to-day finances. And the boys became so influential that when the city of Las Vegas tried to annex the strip to tax the, the massive profits of all these gambling operations, the mob just declared the strip an unincorporated township called Paradise and the city backed off. And there was also a, a ready-made replacement for Bugsy, who was a guy called Johnny Rosselli. Now, he'd worked with Capone back in the 20s, and he was on agreeable terms with all of the, the big underworld figures in California, Florida, the Midwest, and Nevada. And he was especially close to the Florida boss, Santo Traficante, and the Chicago outfit, Sam Giancana. And Rosselli was headhunted by Lansky personally precisely because of these friendships because Lansky knew that it was imperative to heal the rift that had begun to develop uh, between him and Giancana and Traficante after uh, Bugsy Siegel's uh, reign of terror (laughs) and incompetence. Having a guy like Rosselli keeping an eye on things in Vegas Uh, someone that Sam and Santo felt comfortable with. Well, it made excellent business sense. And Giancana and Traficante will be foregrounded more and more as we roll along. So remember their names. To bring it back to Mayalansky once again, it's fair to say that he'd probably foreseen at least the broad outlines of all this expansion long before it actually happened in his own instinctive way because he'd always had that ability to kind of see the game from a higher vantage point than everybody else Uh, back in Brooklyn when Luciano was still shaking down school kids and street cars Lansky was investing the profits from a car theft ring that he operated with Bugsy Siegel in buying up neat alcohol supplies and vacant buildings that he could convert into speakeasies for when prohibition finally came into effect. And while booze injected millions into the criminal economy throughout the 20s, as we discussed, Lansky um, had already convinced Luciana that now was the time to begin expanding ever more into heroin and cocaine, uh, foreseeing repeal approaching years before anybody else. So he was calculating and he was patient and nowhere was this better evidence than when he brokered that agreement between Luciano and Navy intelligence during World War II, or when he started collecting blackmail material on particularly prominent figures in US politics and business back in the 1930s, which we talked about last episode. In fact, we should probably briefly revisit the story of Operation Underworld. Uh, We covered it in episode seven, I believe, but it pays to have another look because there are a few interesting new wrinkles I've discovered since then that I think bear discussion. So I recommend you still check that earlier episode out because (laughs) I'm pretty proud of it. But (laughs) in short, um, Operation Underworld was an alliance between naval intelligence and the mob with the aim of flushing out Nazi spies and saboteurs on the New York docks. Generally, the guy credited with this is a naval intelligence commander called Charles Haffenden. But um, I've read some sources that suggest Lansky was actually the one who made the first move, um, calling in favors on 
behalf of Luciano using blackmail or his connections to the US establishment to facilitate the deal. There's also a few people who think that Bill Donovan, the guy who is considered a kind of founding father of US intelligence um, and was supposed to be on pretty good terms with Lansky, saw an opportunity to bank some goodwill with the syndicate and called Charles Haffenden with the idea. Now, whoever made the first overture, the supposed necessity of the alliance was illustrated when the SS Normandy was conveniently torched and sunk in New York Harbor. And naturally, the US government has always claimed that they had no evidence of underworld sabotage, but at first glance, it does have the look of a classic protection racket move, doesn't it? It's like a much bigger version of putting a brick through the window of the local massage parlor to make the owner pay you for security. Now, whatever the original purpose of Underworld, it pretty quickly became another handy way to break organized labor in the US and keep the war effort ticking along. Luciano sent word that there was to be no union militancy or striking, and in exchange for their help, he was released from prison early and deported to Naples, which we've talked about before. Lansky received the Medal of Freedom from President Truman, and the efficacy of Operation Underworld has always been doubted. There's very little evidence that either the mob or naval intelligence uncovered much in the way of Nazi espionage or sabotage, and there's a decent case to be made that the whole affair was a pretty cynical exercise in resume padding and influence peddling and not just for the bureaucrats of navy intelligence but also for the mobsters involved it's three primary achievements when you break it right down with the early release of a pimp slaver and killer lucky luciano two the further entrenchment of Mayalansky's links to u.s political and intelligence figures and three the destruction of a French ship that was being refitted as a troop carrier, which is incredible work, really. But some versions of the story have it that Operation Underworld is when the relationship between the US government and organized crime was formalized. And to be quite frank, this isn't really accurate because it was just another development, a bigger development in an alliance that stretched back to at least the machine politics of 19th century New York and the Deep South. Now, I won't get too deep into the French connection. And again, check out episode seven uh, for a look at the CIA's post-war heroin trafficking activities. But I think we should probably have a ponder about how the relationship between the mob and the state had changed by the end of World War II. Now, for one thing, with Lansky's leverage over the head of the FBI, Hoover, and the CIA establishing itself as effectively a shadow government, the syndicate now had additional layers of protection beyond the ones that it usually bought from cops and politicians at the local and national level. And in later years, mafiosi like Sam Giancana and Carlos Marcello would often be heard talking about this period between the 40s and the 60s as a time when the US government, the CIA, and the mafia represented a kind of holy trinity, the three P 
pillars of the American establishment. They were almost certainly overestimating their influence on the political system. I mean, for one thing, it seems pretty obvious in hindsight that the mafia was always the subordinate member of this trinity, assuming it existed. But they also weren't entirely wrong. They did provide a service to the US state and the US state in turn did protect them. So Las Vegas was a reliable moneymaker and it was a glamorous prize, but Cuba was the shining jewel. And the reason why Lansky was especially anxious to keep Sam Giancana and Santo Traficante happy was because of their shared business interests in Havana. Now, as we've mentioned before, the mob had enjoyed a relationship with corrupt politicians on the island going back to at least the 1920s. And the chief reason for this is that Cuba was effectively a US puppet state and labor colony at this point. And there are about 500 years of imperialist bloodshed that led up to this state of affairs. But for our purposes here, what's important to appreciate is that Cuba is a resource rich island and its sugar and tobacco plantations were incredibly lucrative. And we also need to appreciate the significance of 1898 when Spain was forced to relinquish colonial rule of Cuba to the US. Now this came at the end of a Cuban uprising against the Spanish. And there'd been talk of annexation from the Americans for decades by this point. And the US government previously tried to buy the island off Spain for about $150 million back in the 1850s. And so taking advantage of the fighting between the Cubans and the Spanish, the US blockaded Cuba's ports and intervened to beat back both the Spanish colonizers and crush the Cuban revolutionaries under the guise of humanitarian intervention. And then they occupied the island until 1902 to ensure that a US-friendly government would be installed. And then they did the same thing again in 1906 because there is nothing new under the sun. Now for the first half of the 20th century, Cuba served as a source of cheap labor and um, a resource extraction for the US. The US government imposed a incredibly onerous system of laws that dictated who the Cubans were allowed to sell their resources to, which was mostly American business. And the Yanks also fixed prices to ensure a steady supply of cheap sugar and tobacco while forcing Cuba to buy goods from America. And Cuba was absolutely pillaged and parts of its territory were occupied to serve as a base of operations for the US Navy and the Air Force. And there was also the Platt Agreement, which gave the US the right to invade and occupy the island if Cuba ever elected a government or implemented policies that would be unfavorable 
to U.S. economic interests. Now, Gerardo Machado is a good example of a Cuban leader who thought that I appeared to think that he could walk the line between a reformist kind of reformist agenda and deference to the U.S. So he implemented an ambitious infrastructure plan when he came to power in 1925, but his attempts to kind of diversify the Cuban economy and agricultural sectors away from sugar and tobacco, and his campaign promise not to accept any more foreign loans quickly ran up against the uh, U.S. imperial might. And by his second term, he'd added $86 million to Cuba's public debt by accepting a usurious loan from the Chase Bank Syndicate. And by the 1920s, American business was eating through Cuba like termites. In fact, about 75% of the island's infrastructure and industry was owned in whole or in part by US businesses by this time. Now, it's thought that around 1933, and some sources peg it to 32 or 34, but we'll say 33, uh, Mayalansky had his representatives make an overt offer to the Cuban government. And 1933 is significant because this is when Batista led a coup against Machado. And thereafter, Batista consolidated his position with a combination of violence and kickbacks and served as the real power behind a string of puppet leaders as more and more of the country fell to predatory American interests like the mob or United Fruit or Chase Bank. And United Fruit in particular was despised throughout the Caribbean and Latin America. Uh, it was nicknamed the octopus because of its incredible reach and it controlled huge amounts of territory and politicians and death squads and you name it. And it would in fact go on to play an important role in many of the CIA's regime change operations in the region throughout the 1950s, which we're going to be circling back to in episodes to come. Batista formally took power in 1940, and he turned over most of Cuba's entertainment sector to the American mob. Now, given the huge profits they made running luxury hotels and resorts on the island, Paying off local officials was easy. Uh, Batista especially made a fortune with weekly briefcases stuffed with a hundred grand in cash, personally delivered to his presidential palace by Mayalansky every single month. And by 1950, the mob had established a monopoly on almost all the drug trafficking and prostitution and gambling operations in Cuba, and they poured all the profits into the Vegas casinos and banks that they earned. And Luciana also maintained a base of operations at the Hotel Nacional after his release from prison in 1947. And Santo Traficante was also a regular visitor to Cuba during uh, Batista's reign, earning a piece of the San Suchi Casino, which became a favorite haunt of a handsome young senator called Richard Nixon in the 1950s. 
So a syndicate presence in Cuba and throughout Latin America was broadly agreeable to figures in the upper echelons of the American business and political class because mobsters were good at keeping workers in check through strike breaking and murder and union infiltration and guys like Lansky were effective channels of communication between Batista and representatives from US politics. Now, the glitz and glamour of these mob casinos also led to Cuba being nicknamed the Latin Las Vegas in the tourist brochures. And the good time atmosphere, you know, of a plucky little country on the make was played up by US diplomatic staff and people like Nixon whenever they visited, even as 30,000 people would end up being killed by Batista's death squads and ordinary Cubans sank further and further into poverty. The mob was extremely careful to look after its influential friends, um, understandably so. So a good example of this is the time that Nixon and his buddy Dana Smith went to the San Suchi to grab some R&R in 1952. They both lost as much as 50 grand between them. Um, at roulette and although Smith paid off Traficante's casino manager to cover the debt once he'd sobered up back in the States and was feeling safe and secure he cancelled the check uh, because he decided the game had actually been rigged against him now ordinarily it's pretty obvious what any self-respecting mob boss would do when you face with you know two deadbeats skipping out on money that they owe you which is probably why Nixon was so quick to cable the US State Department with a panicked request that Smith be offered diplomatic protection the next time that he visited visited Havana. Now, Traficante, as a student of Lansky, had a much longer-term vision and he saw potential in Nixon. He would have probably decided against retrieving the money anyway, but his mind was made up with the intervention of a guy called Bebe Rebozo. Rebozo was an American banker and property developer of Cuban descent who was very close to Lansky and Traficante and a host of other underworld figures. And he was also close to the Cleveland mafia family. And supposedly he'd invested some of his money in Al Polizzi's drug trafficking operations there during the 1950s. And he also had plenty of friends in the legitimate world, including a very close business relationship with a lawyer and a future state senator called George Smathers. So why did the mob see potential in Nixon? That's probably the key question here. Well, as early as 1946, when Nixon successfully ran for Congress, none other than Mickey Cohen donated five grand to his campaign and laid on free office space for Nixon's staff at the direction of Bugsy and his Eastern syndicate bosses. And Mickey also hosted a fundraising dinner for Nixon that brought in an additional $75,000. And the way he did this... It's pretty funny. Uh, he did it by locking all the doors to the dining room during Nixon's speech and passing word through the crowd that nobody 
would be let out, the doors would not be unlocked until the target amount of $70,000 had been reached. <laughs> so they were apparently so desperate to get away from this speech, they went five grand over. Now Nixon was the perfect combination of incredibly crooked and incredibly ambitious, but it's possible that he, Smathers, and Rebozo all crossed paths a little earlier, back in 1942, when a complicated Cuba to Florida bootleg tire scheme that Rebozo and Lansky are both said to have had a financial stake in was uh, stumbled upon by US Customs. Now Nixon, who was working at the Office of Price Administration at the time and was in charge of matters pertaining to tire rationing, was asked to give a ruling on whether he saw any evidence of intent to trade in illicit tires by George Smathers, who was representing the defense in court. Now, we don't know what Nixon's answer was because their correspondence uh, was mysteriously destroyed at some point in the 1940s. But it's entirely possible that this is the moment where Nixon first dealt with syndicate representatives in exchange for either money or future political support, or both. Now, however his relationship with the mob began, Nixon remained close to its figureheads for the rest of his career. And while Cuba and Vegas were two crucial nexus points where people from the upper and the underworld met, there's another that's almost entirely forgotten about these days. And in its own way, it's actually every bit as significant a location as the Hotel Excelsior in Rome. If I was going to sketch you a map of deep state sightseeing places, I would put this place on there alongside the Hotel Excelsior. It was a luxury resort in California called the Hotel del Charo. And as well as being a mob and a spook hangout, it also connected directly to Texas and the rising power of the cowboy faction of the US deep state. conscious of time right now and I'd hate to keep you too much longer so we'll be going much deeper next episode on Dallas but I think we should take a few minutes to introduce it here because obviously it will play such a massive role in this series and we need to understand why it produced the politics that it did in the post-war years. Now put simply it was down to oil, guns, and nukes. And in a strange way, it embodies the mindset of the cowboy faction of the US power elite. It was a city that should not have existed, uh, building doomsday devices that nobody should possess. And all of it was willed into existence by a Protestant business class that saw itself as latter-day pioneers, uh, taming 
the harsh landscape and building a monument to capitalistic excess uh, because they saw their wealth and the skyscrapers that were rising above the scorching desert. Well, they saw all of that as uh, physical manifestations of their personal virtue. Now, the East Texas oil booms of the 1920s and the 30s and the onset of World War II and the Cold War saw a massive influx of new arrivals looking to get rich off the electronics and arms and missile and aerospace industries. So the bombs that incinerated Hiroshima and Nagasaki announced the emergence of the USA as the heir to Britain's role as world superpower. And a lot of oil and money was going to be needed to drive this um, imperial machine. So this was the making of a kind of new bourgeois class of defense contractors and oil industry employees in Dallas. And the number of people in post-war manufacturing jobs in the city grew at three times the national average throughout the 1950s as a result. So although it had been a true blue Democrat stronghold all through the first half of the 20th century, the emergence of this new class began to shift the tide of Dallas politics towards the Republicans and a kind of hard right, paranoid libertarianism. And nobody embodies this shift better than a guy called Haroldson L. Hunt, who we'll be talking about more in the next episode. Uh, but it's worth taking a look at him here because he used much of his wealth to fund far-right radio shows like Facts Forum and Lifeline. And he was a diehard anti-communist and member of the John Birch Society. And again, more on them next episode. But he also donated a lot of money to people like Lyndon B. Johnson, which might seem strange, but bear in mind that Johnson, while a Democrat, was extremely sympathetic to the plight of the humble oil well owner and supported the oil depletion allowance and policies like that that were favorable to the industry. Johnson knew who paid his bills and kept his lights on, essentially. So although Hunt would eventually disengage entirely from the Democratic Party, the other Dallas oil billionaires like Clint Murchison remained presidential Republicans while also looking to do business with local blue dog Democrats. Murchison offers us our route to the Hotel Del Charo because along with his lifelong friend and fellow oil billionaire Sid Richardson, he earned both the hotel and the local Del Mar racetrack in San Diego. Murchison and Richardson liked the location of the two properties because it gave them even more access to influential politicians and law enforcement officials and celebrities and gangsters than they'd already enjoyed back in Texas. Now, before Murchison and Richardson came along, the racetrack and the hotel had passed through the hands of a string of organized crime figures connected to the Chicago mob and Maya Lansky, and they all used frontmen and shell companies to disguise this control. Bing Crosby, even put his name on the lease to Del Mar Racetrack at one point, and he received a percentage of the takings in exchange for lending the business some of his star power and wholesome legitimacy. Now, for a flavor of um, a typical day at the hotel, check out this quote from the Daily Racing Form, dated July 26, 1956. The bellman starts his round with the form. 
scratch sheets and newspapers. His first stop is at the Murchison Cottage. Clint Murchison has probably been up since 5am, drinking whiskey and transacting more business by the dawn's early light than most men do in a lifetime. Chauffeurs arrive from the town with the longest and blackest of the General Motors products. One belongs to Texas oil tycoon Roy Woods, who has a dollar for every drop of water in Niagara Falls. Bob Bowden, the six foot six mate D, is discussing J. Edgar Hoover's dinner for Vice President Richard Nixon with the chef. Now Hoover was a regular visitor to the Hotel Del Charo, and he spent at least two weeks every summer with his buddy, Clyde Tolson, free of charge, in a luxury cottage that Murchison and Richardson had built specifically for him. And his outstanding tab at the hotel is supposed to have been anything between $15,000 to $30,000. One summer at Del Charo, uh, Hoover casually remarked that he missed his hotel back in Florida, where he could, you know, pick fruit from the trees that were growing over his balcony. And then he woke up the next day to find that at some point in the middle of the night, Sid Richardson had arranged for two pear trees, two peach trees, and two plum trees in full flower to be flown in and planted in the yard in front of his cottage. As well as Nixon, uh, Hoover also rubbed shoulders with Lyndon Johnson, who already lived across the street from him back in Washington. And he also got along pretty well with gangsters like Carlos Marcello and Sam Giancana and mob-connected figures like Al Hart and Frank Sinatra and Johnny Rosselli. Now, bear in mind that Hoover is still denying the mafia exists at this point, and yet he knows that these guys are actually connected to, if not full-fledged members of, and even bosses in the mafia. Howard Hughes even personally visited Hoover at Del Charo at some point in the 50s and offered him a job as his representative in D.C. He even let Hoover name a price, but Hoover demurred. Uh, intriguingly, Hughes seems to have been alerted that he needed to be wary of bugs and surveillance equipment at the hotel in general and in Hoover's rooms specifically because his first question was about how safe it was to talk inside Edgar's cottage. Of course, Hoover declined Hughes's offer, um, but they remained on very good terms with each other. And Hughes would always turn to Hoover for insider advice and the odd political favor. But, you know, don't think that Hoover declined a more formal partnership out of some, like, sense of integrity. Because it's probable that he was already on Murchison and Richardson's payroll in some way. He'd already been compromised by them. He ended up investing some of his own money in Murchison's oil ventures. And as usual, it seems like Hoover had correctly assessed which way the balance of power was shifting in the shadow world of U.S. deep politics. Because after World War II, the cowboys of the Southwest, riding high on that tide of oil and arms manufacturing profits that we just discussed, well, they were, they were definitely in the ascendant. So that's why Hoover maintained good relations with Howard Hughes, who himself was part of the, I suppose, cowboy faction. And it's why he likely repaid Murchison and Richardson's hospitality in three primary ways. The first was by lending this hotel of theirs that was basically a spook, a mobster hangout. It was by lending that an air of legitimacy. Uh, 
The second was by catching and killing unfavorable stories about the clientele of Del Charo before they could make it to print. And the third was by hipping the pair to upcoming congressional inquiries or else kind of signposting them towards senators and congressmen that they need to bribe to head off another vote on oil subsidies or tax rises for the big southern oil and gas companies. Murchison especially seems to have understood the value of cultivating these friendships in high places. Uh, for example, he was a fan of uh, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, and he even encouraged him to run for president. And when he did, Murchison wound up donating millions to Ike's presidential bid. And he even subsidized the president's farm in Pennsylvania after he won the election. Now, that second point about Hoover, about catching and killing stories in the press, that's more significant than you might imagine. Um, Hoover fucking loved gossip, and the gorier and more depraved it was, the better, as far as he saw it. Uh, so he had his agents keep an ear to the ground for any and all dirt that he could use to protect his allies or use against his political enemies and rich and famous people that he just took a dislike to. And he also worked closely with Howard Hughes and William Wilkerson when it came time to prosecute the second Red Scare and devise the Hollywood blacklist. Another interesting connection here is Senator Joe McCarthy, who we all remember was the alcoholic redbetter and lifelong fan of underage girls. Um, McCarthy was also a frequent visitor at Del Charo. He was mostly known to the other guests and management as a guy who liked to get absolutely hammered and occasionally dropkick his wife or hotel waiting staff into the swimming pool on a whim. And when he was still in the good graces of the US power elite around the late 40s going into the 50s, this kind of behavior was tolerated and it'd be a few years before he was finally publicly rebuked by Murchison in front of the other guests and banned for life from the hotel. But around this time though, the late 40s, Joe's star was on the rise. And Hoover, Wilkerson, and McCarthy used Wilkerson's magazine, The Hollywood Reporter, to whip up hysteria about communist infiltration of the American entertainment industry. Wilkerson ran a column in that magazine called Billy's List, where he named people in showbiz who he thought were secretly working for the Russians or spreading communist propaganda through their work in Hollywood. And many of these names were fed to him by Hoover, Howard Hughes, and Joe McCarthy. This type of thing played especially well in Nevada and Texas for McCarthy. Um, he had a reputation there as a self-made American who was sticking it to the um, effeminate liberalism of Hollywood pinkers and other establishment types. Uh, one of McCarthy's first anti-communist speeches was made in Reno in 1950, and he was embraced by prominent Texas conservatives, especially in Dallas, and he voted consistently for deregulation of the oil and gas industries on the say-so of people like Richardson and Murchison as an example of this growing influence and power that people like that had. So... There we have a kind of snapshot of the overlap between organized crime and big business and the state as it looked after World War II. And I think this is as good a place to conclude 
the return episode as any. I was intending to go a bit longer, but, you know, I think I've twisted your ear enough for now. So next time, we're going to be looking at Dallas in much more detail and discussing people like Haraldson L. Hunt, and then we'll be tracking the CIA through the 1950s, as well as George H.W. Bush. Most of all, we'll also be checking in with JFK and kind of finding out a little bit more about how he fared in World War II, and then we'll follow some of his career up through the 1950s. So once again, a massive thanks for keeping the faith. Uh, we will 100% be back next week. And as ever, give us a rating on iTunes if you haven't already and urge on friends and loved ones alike. Mark the exits, check the sightlines and don't get captured. Cheers, guys. <laughs> <laughs>